going to go in a little different direction. Uh, you can get rid of your notes. <laughs> I want to... Uh, Before we go into the Lord's Supper, I want to share two testimonies. Uh, again, just seem very compelled by God to do this, but Anne said something that really confirmed this. Uh, she talked about legacy. And I was thinking how long I've been in this ministry, how often I've shared these two testimonies. And then I realized these two testimonies have never been taped. I don't think they've ever been audio taped or videotaped. And I thought with my good friend Terry, one of our elders who's been uh, taping all the sessions here, that uh, what a wonderful opportunity this would be, uh, just to be able to capture this for uh, legacy's sake, uh, because these are two very precious testimonies that really capture, well, the first testimony captures the heart of what we do. Uh, the second testimony really captures the heart of why we do it. So are you rolling, Terry? Okay. Uh, and this first testimony, there's probably many of you have heard this testimony. There'll be others that have not. Uh, but it's about a client named uh, Billy. Uh, need to give you Billy's uh, background. Billy was sexually molested by her stepfather. The sexual molestation began at the age of six, and she was molested for six years. At the age of 12, she began to be sexually active with boys. By the time Billy was 14, uh, sexual activity was a very significant stronghold in her life. As a teenage girl, she got involved with a much, much older man that literally was the personification of all that evil could be. I'll never forget asking Billy the question, would you mind sharing with me how you got connected with him? Her answer was, well, Brother Andy, you need to understand, I'd been so devastated by the sexual abuse And it just stripped me of any sense of self-worth, self-esteem. I just saw myself as useless and worthless. And she said, I reasoned in my mind and in my heart that this man was the only man low enough that could love somebody like me. So she got involved with him. They actually moved to this area. They were living together. And she became pregnant in that relationship. Desired to have an abortion. They didn't have the money to obtain an abortion. She actually attempted to abort herself and failed in the attempt. 
shortly after the failed abortion attempt, the apartment that they were living in caught fire. And God, and God miraculously spared Billy and that little one that was developing in her uh, from, uh, from injury, from harm. And at that point, basically totally destitute, uh, pregnant, she walks into our pregnancy center here in town. And as you do in your ministries, we reached out to Billy with unconditional love. Uh, we provided her a window into her womb to see the magnificent beauty of that little one developing in her. Uh, we let her know she would not have to walk alone through the difficult days of her pregnancy or beyond, but that we would be there for her. She turned from abortion to choose life for the little one. We knew we had to get her out of the situation she, she was in. We offered to place her in a home, and she took us up on the offer to get away from the man and just have a sort of a new beginning in her life. So she moved in with one of our church family here at Edgewood. The other thing you need to know about Billy, she was in total spiritual darkness. She had never been confronted uh, by the claims of Christianity. She knew absolutely nothing about the Bible. She didn't even know some of the most basic Bible stories that you would think virtually every person would, like, you know, Noah or uh, the, the flood, you know, Moses and the Red Sea, King David, all of that. She had never been exposed to any uh, Christianity. So she's living with one of our church family. Of course, the folks at the pregnancy center are ministering to her, and she begins to come to church with the family. And of course, uh, there are innumerable opportunities uh, arise to be able to share with Billy. And so people are in the church and the family she's living with, pregnancy center workers, they're loving her, ministering to her, uh, sharing with her about uh, the Lord Jesus Christ and, and, and His love, His death, burial, and resurrection. And we were in a Sunday evening worship service. And it was a communion service like this one. And Billy was in the service. Matter of fact, she, uh, about right where Melanie is, right there, she was sitting in that area. The configuration was a little different at that time with the pews, but she was right about there. And uh, the message that night was taken from Luke chapter 7 that gives the story of when... Uh, Jesus went to the home of a very self-righteous Pharisee by the name of Simon to have dinner. And if you're familiar with the story, sort of trying to piece it together, the Bible doesn't give us all the details of the backdrop to the story, but apparently Jesus ministering in that Pharisee city earlier that day, a woman's life had been forever changed. She apparently heard his teaching, put her confidence, trust, and faith in him. And this was what the Bible called a sinful woman. She was a whore, a prostitute, a harlot. Well, she apparently discovers 
that Jesus is still in her hometown that night over at Simon's house. And she apparently thought to herself, somehow, I got to crash that dinner party and express my love to my newfound Savior and Lord. And you know the story. What did she bring with her? That very, very expensive alabaster vial of perfume. And so you have to picture the scene. Jesus and Simon are eating. They would have been reclining at table, laying on their side, propped up by one of their elbows, the other hand free to eat, legs and feet tucked up behind them. And suddenly she walks in. She begins to approach the Lord Jesus Christ, and she loses it, just begins to uncontrollably weep, just overcome by His love, being in His presence, in light of the forgiveness that she had extended, that He had extended to her. And probably initially noticed her tears were falling on the dust-stained feet of the Savior. And then the Bible tells us she took her hair, and with her hair and her tears, she washed the feet of Jesus. And then she took that alabaster vial of perfume, she broke the vial and poured every single drop on Jesus. Most extravagant act of worship recorded in the Bible as the fragrance of that perfume just filled the house. And then, the Bible tells us, she buried herself, literally. Now again, picture the scene, imagine it. She literally buries herself at the feet of Jesus, and the Bible says she began kissing His feet. And just kissing his feet, the, the, the tense of the Greek verb is, she just began to kiss the feet of Jesus over and over and over again. Now, this self-righteous Pharisee, Simon, this is his hometown. He knows the reputation of this woman. He's watching all this. He doesn't say anything out loud. But the Bible tells us he becomes totally repulsed by the scene. He thinks to himself, if this Jesus really is a man sent from God, if he really is a prophet, if he's a teacher, he would not let a woman like that within shouting distance, not to mention to touch him. Now let me pause right there. Billy's sitting right there. And by this time in the, in the story... This teenage girl is literally on the edge of her pew, and her eyes are huge. She's just enraptured in this story. Why? She can identify with the sinful woman. And what's going on in her mind and her heart were these questions. Wait a minute. You know, the folks here at the church, the family I'm living with, the, the pregnancy center folks, they keep telling me about this Jesus the very Son of God, God Himself, who left heaven and came to this earth to die for the sins of all, including my sins. 
that this is God come to the world in human flesh. And she's intrigued by the question, not ever having heard this story, I wonder how God come to this world in human flesh is going to respond to this immoral woman like I'm immoral. Well, the story continues. Although Simon doesn't say anything, Jesus knows exactly what he's thinking. He turns to Simon and he says, Simon, there were two men and they owed the same money lender a debt. But one owed a very, very, very small debt. One owed an enormous debt. You know, let's say in our vernacular, you know, one owed $5, the other owed $500,000. He said, Simon, I want to ask you a question. Which one of those men would love the most if the moneylender forgave both men their debts, just wipe the slate clean? Both men, he said, your debts are canceled out. You owe me nothing anymore. I'm just... Releasing you of the debt. Which one of those men would love the most? Well, Simon doesn't have to think long and probably in a pretty arrogant, snootful way. Looks at Jesus, well, I assume, Master, the one forgiven most would love the most. And he said, Simon, you've answered well. And then still addressing Simon, but now using the woman buried at his feet as his sermon illustration, he says, Simon, Simon, look at this woman. Look at her, Simon. When I came into your home, did you have the common courtesy to have one of your servants wash my feet before the meal? Again, just common etiquette in that day. No, but Simon, Simon, look at this woman that you detest, that repulses you with her tears of appreciation for who I am, what I did for her. She has washed my feet. Simon, look at this woman. Look at her, Simon. When I came into your home, did you have me anointed? Prior to the meal, again, just another common etiquette in that day? No. But Simon, Simon, look. Look at this woman. She's brought her most valuable possession, an alabaster vial of perfume, very costly vial of perfume. She's broke it. She spilled every drop on me to demonstrate what? That she's counted all things lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing me, that I am now her first love, greatest passion and pursuit. Simon, look at her. Look at this woman, Simon. When I came into your home, did you greet me with the customary oriental greeting kiss? No. But Simon, look at her. Even now, she remains buried at my feet, and she has not ceased to kiss my feet. Simon, look at her. You see this woman, Simon? The one who's forgiven much, Simon loves much and then in one of the most tender scenes in the Savior's ministry 
he finally puts his attention on the woman. Takes his hand, places it underneath her chin. Remember, she's still buried at his feet, kissing his feet. Places his hand underneath, raises her face till their eyes met. Can you even begin to imagine that look of love, that look of compassion that he gave that woman? And I praise God that that's the same look you attendees give your girls every single day that come into your pregnancy center. As you are channels to display to them Jesus. And looking into her eyes, he says, woman, thy faith has saved you. Your sins have been forgiven. Go in peace. Now, don't get so wrapped up in this story to forget Billy. Do you know what happened right at that moment in Billy's heart and life? A miracle took place. A divine, supernatural miracle of new birth. As God's light penetrated that young girl's dark heart, and as the lights came on, she suddenly realized with such tremendous excitement If Jesus could love her, he could love me. If he could forgive her, he can forgive me. If he gave her a new beginning, he can give me a new beginning. And that night, right there in her pew, she made her heart Christ's home. As he came in to take residence with her as her Lord and as her Savior. And Billy has never been the same. To this day. But that's not the end of her testimony. It's very, very precious. She chose an adoption plan for her child. She knew she wanted the baby to have both a mom and a dad. She wanted her child to be raised in a Christian home. She gave birth to an absolutely beautiful, beautiful little girl. And when it came time for her to surrender the child for placement, for adoption, do you know how Billy, in her heart, approached her adoption? She viewed her baby as her Alabaster, vial of perfume. To be surrendered at the feet of Jesus. That is the heart of who we are. What we do. Yes, seeing little ones saved from the slaughter of abortion. To have the opportunity to discover their God-given destiny so that it would resound to the praise and glory of God. But also to see the lives of our clients transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
never to be the same again. The second testimony I want to share, and then we'll go right into the Lord's Supper. It really captures the heart of why we do what we do. It was an abortion-minded woman came into our pregnancy center, turned from abortion to choose life for her little one, and like Billy, she chose an adoption plan uh, for her child. The baby was born. Baby was temporarily put in foster care, awaiting placement with the adoptive family. Uh, the baby had only been in the foster home just several days. And the foster mom became a little concerned. She just didn't think the baby was eating as she should. It was a, it was a, a beautiful little black girl that we just initially named Carrie. And uh, she just didn't think she was thriving like she should. So we arranged for her to be taken to uh, be checked out at the hospital by a doctor. And he said, everything looks fantastic. I I don't see any problem. And then she was going to be dismissed be able to go back to the foster home, and the placement was just going to be within the next day or two. And before she left the hospital, she had a massive cerebral hemorrhage. Uh, She had to be put on life support. It's the only thing keeping her going. There were a battery of doctors working uh, with her. It was at the medical center here in town. A couple of the doctors that were involved with her Uh, were members of our church and eventually they came to us and they said there's nothing that we can do for this little one they said the cerebral hemorrhage was massive uh, that it's basically deteriorated her brain and our recommendation would be just to take her off of life support and just an attitude of faith, just surrendering her to the arms of God. If God's going to do a miracle, He can raise her, but if He's taken her home, let Him take her home to be with Him. Because He says, there's nothing we can do. Well, we prayed about it as a ministry. We, we fasted, prayed, sought God, and we concurred with the doctors. But we made the decision that once she was taken off of life support, that she would immediately be placed in our arms and she would never leave our arms. I'm talking about physical arms of somebody involved in our ministry until either God did a miracle and healed her or he took her home to be with him. She was taken off of life support on a Friday morning or afternoon. I can't remember exactly. Uh, Phoebe Dawson was the executive director of our adoption agency. We had an adoption agency at that time called New Beginnings. It was a ministry of our church. You know, that was a beautiful thought back in those days. Uh, The the licensed adoption agency was Edgewood Baptist Church. So when we took surrender from a girl, the legal guardian of the baby was Edgewood Baptist Church until the baby was placed uh, with her uh, or his adoptive family. And uh, so 
uh, she was taken off life support, immediately put into Phoebe's arms. The doctors said we, we would not, they told us prior, they said, we do not anticipate her living very long at all unless God does some divine intervention. And to everyone's uh, amazement, especially the, the, the medical doctors, uh, it appeared, and I was present when they, she was taken off of life support, it appeared that she was going to go home to be with the Lord, and then suddenly she just sort of kicked in. And, uh, and so they put us in a room. There was nothing that could be done for the little girl. And so Phoebe had her. Phoebe had to go on a trip uh, the next morning. So I told Phoebe, Phoebe, I'll come up and get her tonight. Uh, we'll, I'll, we'll change the baton. You can give her to me. And, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and then I'll keep her through the weekend until uh, our services on Sunday morning. And then somebody can take over from me. So Phoebe placed her in my arms Friday night. And when Phoebe placed her in my arms, I just silently asked God. I said, God, would you please give me the strength the entire time I'm with the little girl never to sleep? Give me the strength not to fall asleep. Just the whole time I can just love on her, pray for her, sing to her. And so uh, uh, we went through Friday, Friday evening. We got into Saturday, and Saturday was a very, very rough day for Carrie. It was like a, a roller coaster. I remember I would take my fingers and I would place them over a little chest and I could detect that little heartbeat sort of just erasing, but then it would slowly subside and I could no longer detect that her heart was beating and I would look down in her and I could not detect that she was, any, that she was breathing any longer. And there were actually a couple times that day where the nurses came in, they checked her and they said, it, it seems like she's very, very close, but you know, she's still alive. And then what would happen is she would gasp. And then that, ra- that heart would start racing again. And then it would just slowly subside. And it was just like that all Saturday, this, this up and down. We got into the wee hours of Sunday morning. I was on a recliner. I had Carrie laying on my chest And again, I'm just loving on her, praying on her, singing her every song I know. I can't sing worth a hoot. My wife would tell you that. But Carrie didn't know any better. Hopefully, she enjoyed it. And uh, and, uh, as she's laying on my chest, I remember because my eyes were fixated on the clock. There was a clock right in front of me, and it was 2 a.m., and I must at that point just collapse to sleep with her on my chest. When... My eyes opened back up. I woke up. It was 2.20. That's all I remember. I remember the last time I looked at the clock, it was 2. Now it's 2.20. It had been 20 minutes. And sometime between 2 and 2.20, God took Carrie home to be with him. Now, this is where I have to be very transparent with you. I got very mad at God. Became very disappointed. 
I couldn't understand. God, why? After seeing her saved from abortion, why would you let her suffer that death at such an early age? And I'm really struggling. I'm talking about severely struggling with my grief and my anger towards God. And in the midst of all that, I'm called on to do her funeral service. I'll never forget that tiny little casket. She's buried right over here at Park Hill. And it was shortly after the funeral, I hit the depths of my grief and my, and my anger with God. And when I hit my lowest point, God spoke to me. Now, please, you understand what I mean. I didn't hear an audible voice. But it's one of those unique experiences. You've all had them. Well, you know God is speaking to your heart. It's almost like there's a conversation going on between you. And it's like God spoke to my heart as I'm struggling with my anger toward him, struggling with my grief. He said, Andy. Don't you know who that little girl was? I said, Lord, that was Carrie. Andy, don't you know who that little girl was? I said, Lord, that was Carrie. And then it was as if God sort of grieved with me, disappointed with me. He said, Andy, you don't understand, do you? And I wasn't understanding. It was going woof right over my head. And then right at that moment, God drove into my heart that verse out of Matthew. As much as you've done it into one of the least of these, you've done it what? Unto me. And then it was as if God said to me, Andy, I want you to know. Every time you kiss that little girl's cheek, you are kissing the face of God. Every song, every hymn, every word of praise you sang to her went up before my throne as a sweet, sweet aroma of praise. Every time you were embracing her, you were embracing me. Now, that didn't resolve all my perplexity. I still don't understand why God in His sovereignty uh, took her at that time. But here's what I want you to hear. Because I said this testimony gives us the reason why we do what we do. I've never been the same since that experience. In terms of my attitude in this ministry and especially those that we minister to, I realize that first and foremost, everything we do is an expression of worship and love for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That every time you welcome a girl into your center, you're welcoming Him. 
Every time you love that girl unconditionally, you're loving him. Every time you minister to her in so many different ways as we do, you're ministering to him. And he views what you do as a good, good thing that honors him, that worships him. And so I leave that with you as we go into the Lord's Supper. Thank you that you are standing in the gap for girls like Billy and her little baby. The baby that was saved from slaughter and then Billy saved from eternal destruction to find new life in Christ. Thank you. That is what our ministries are all about. And thank you that the reason you do what you do is first and foremost out of your love for Jesus. That this ministry just provides us as difficult as it is at times. It provides us an opportunity to worship Him, to love Him. Bow with me in prayer. Lord, we just want to thank you, all these attendees. Thank you for the unspeakable privilege that you've given us to be in this ministry. And I do pray you would help us to never lose sight of the truth that first and foremost, everything we do is to worship you, is to glorify you, to exalt you. That first and foremost, every act of love toward a client is ultimately an act of love toward you, an opportunity to demonstrate to you the depth of our love, to demonstrate to you the value that we put on our relationship with you. And then thank you that as we love you, through this ministry, that we have the incredible privilege to intervene in the lives of those that are broken, in the lives of sinners like Billy, And we have the wonderful privilege to see the power of the gospel change a life, transform a life. We have the wonderful privilege to see little ones saved from the slaughter of abortion, to discover we trust their God-given destiny, and we trust only eternity will record the difference they make. And we trust that you will raise these little ones up as trophies of your grace that would resound to the praise and glory of Jesus. So, Lord, as we come to celebrate the Lord's Supper right now, we come first and foremost to worship you, to remember you, to remember who you are, to remember what you did for us, your death, burial, and resurrection 
the new life you brought to our hearts and lives, and now the wonderful opportunity that we have for Christ to be formed in us, to be displayed through us, that then others might come to know new life in Christ and their little ones saved. And so, Lord, we come with grateful hearts. And, Lord, we also come in an act of faith. We've been challenged with so much truth this weekend. And, Lord, we're going to come as we partake with the faith and confidence in you that you will take the truth that we have received and that you would cause it to take seed in our hearts deep, become rooted there, and then from our hearts to grow, to blossom, that the beauty and majesty and glory of our Savior would be seen through us. So, Lord, we come now with our alabaster vial of perfumes, our lives, to be broken and spilled out to you because we love you, because we know your undeserved grace. You have met us in your mercy, and you have saved us, depraved, doomed sinners with no hope. And you've not only brought us again to new life, but to ministry, to share your light, life, and love with others. For it's in Christ's name we do pray. Amen.